Well, good morning, everybody. And uh, when Kathy sat down this morning, she quoted this verse. I was glad when they said to me, let us go into the house of the Lord. Amen. Uh, our boys are, have been home from Taylor University this quarter. Um, Taylor's adopted a slogan that said, not defined by geography. But uh, geography is important, yeah? And so we just praise God that we've been able to get together. Um, but you know what? If, if we're not together, you know, Paul says, we are united in spirit. We're with each other in spirit. So um, wherever we are, we praise the Lord. So, uh, yeah, and if my mom is watching by live stream, happy Mother's Day to you, Mom, and to all the mothers. Uh, we just give thanks to God today for his goodness. Let's open in prayer. Father, we thank you. Thank you that, um, that you love us. And thank you, though we are weak and needy, you are strong. And uh, though we are sinful, you came to bring forgiveness. And so even though earthly authorities have failed, you have come to reign and rule. And you sent Jesus and he will reign forever and ever. And so Lord, we offer our hearts and our ears to you today. Speak to us, give us understanding. Help us to, to hear to understand, to believe, and to obey by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we are uh, in the midst of a series on the book of Matthew, and I get chapter five today, and it's a long one. There's a lot in there. Um, and uh, Matthew five is the beginning of what, what is famously known as Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And... Uh, as Stephen said in his introduction a couple weeks ago, uh, the fact that Jesus is climbing a mountain is really significant because it harkens us back to, to Moses uh, on Mount Sinai in the wilderness. And at that place, that's when God was basically taking up rule, political rule over the nation of Israel and he was setting down his laws, his expectations for how life was going to be uh, for his nation, Israel. And here we see Jesus climbing a mountain, which also represents, gives us a picture of, of ascending from earth up to heaven. And so it's a picture of him enthroned as king. And in this sermon, basically he is telling uh, the people, really followers of him, like you and me, um, how are things going to change? It's a new regime. His kingdom is coming. In fact, has already started to come at this point here. And um, what's going to change? And how, are, how is our life going to change? Um, what, are, what are his expectations? Um, he's coming to replace the earthly kingdoms and systems that have been uh, in charge up to this point. Boy, that's good news, right? Because the truth is, we've failed. Now, we might wait and say, um, but you know, how could, how could corrupt humans have really been ruling 
in the place of God. Isn't God sovereign? Yes, he is. But in his sovereignty from the beginning, from Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 4, or uh, in Genesis, he has um, delegated that authority to human beings on earth. But from the beginning, we pretty much completely failed at that and gave that authority away to his enemy by our disobedience, by our sin. And uh, none of this actually surprised God because it says in the, in the Bible that from the beginning, from be, before creation, God had known and planned to send Jesus, his son, but also a true man, to be the Messiah, to be the Savior, but also to take up authority as king on earth and rule forever. And so, uh, basically, Jesus climbing this mountain, he's telling all of us how the new kingdom is going to work. And uh, so that we can get with the program as his subjects. Now, it's a regime change. We can study human history and find all sorts of regime changes and what happens, and it's usually not very pretty. Um, I'm thinking of of China in the 1940s when um, Mao Zedong and the communists were uh, taking over and pushing from north to south, pushing out the old and corrupt uh, nationalist government and, uh, and coming to take over. And before they came through, they would send um, ambassadors, uh, workers, soldiers ahead to every village, to every city, to every town, and kind of prepare people and explain how their lives were going to change. Uh, well, in a, in a much better way, that's kind of what Jesus is doing here. And um, maybe a better or more positive example is from our school, Christian Outreach School. Back in the 1990s, we had a great principal and math teacher. His name was Mr. Horridge. And uh, he, he, was one of the, he was already one of the best math teachers I've ever met. But uh, he just... He actually didn't have his bachelor's degree, so he had gone back to college uh, to, to get his degree. And even though he'd been a teacher for many years, they required him to do student teaching. And so he was sent to one of our county public junior highs to do student teaching. Unfortunately, uh, the mentor teacher that he was assigned to really had almost no control over her class. And the learning environment there was pretty terrible. And, uh, you know, when, you're a st- when you student teach, you start off the first two or three weeks, you're observing, you're doing little tasks like grading papers and helping out. But when it came time for him to actually start teaching, he respectfully asked the teacher, could, could she leave the room so that he could address the students himself? And he basically said, hey, I am not the same as she is. I have different expectations. This is the way it's going to go. And then basically he did that, and the results 
were much improved because they got with the program and he held them to it. And uh, the, the environment, the learning environment improved amazingly. And uh, I'm not sure what happened after he was done student teaching and it went back. But, uh, but that's kind of what Jesus is doing here. He's, he's saying, there's a new kingdom coming. Um, the Old Testament had been foretelling this coming in many ways. One of them is in Daniel chapter 2, verses 31 to 35. Uh, Daniel is recounting and then interpreting a dream that God gave to King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. And this is, this is what Daniel explained. As you, O king, were watching, a great statue appeared. A great and dazzling statue stood before you, and its form was awesome. The head of the statue was pure gold. Its chest and arms were silver. Its belly and thighs were bronze. Its legs were iron, and its feet were part iron and part clay. As you watched, a stone was cut out, but not by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and crushed them. Then the iron, clay, bronze, silver, and gold were shattered and became like chaff on the threshing floor in summer. The wind carried them away, and not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that had struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. So, in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is telling those who followed him up the mountain that this last stage of Nebuchadnezzar's dream was beginning to be fulfilled. It's really happening. All the human kingdoms and systems are going to be smashed to dust and disappear. And his rule will grow to cover the earth. With that in mind, what should they and we do? This is really happening, right? There's a change. What do you, do you recall... What were the first words that Jesus preached in the Bible, in the New Testament? What are the first words that Jesus preached? Well, it was just back in Matthew chapter 4. And what did he say? He said, it says, From that time Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You know, that's the same message that John the Baptist preached. And those who had listened to John's message repented. They were baptized. They were the ones who were ready to hear Jesus tell them how the kingdom of heaven was going to be manifested in their hearts and their lives. What does repent mean? Repent means to turn from your former wrong way and turn and follow a better path. This is where we start with the kingdom as well. By faith in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, we were born again. And uh, I think it's very significant that Warren had the word that he had this morning uh, talking about repenting and making sure that you are giving your life 
by faith to Jesus because that is where the kingdom starts and that is how we are, we are changed. We are empo- filled and empowered with his spirit. And once that happens, Jesus is saying, now, how does life in this new kingdom, in this new state, this new life, how does it work? What does it look like? Well, Jesus starts with a poem, and we call it the Beatitudes. That's a, that's a fancy word that just means uh, extreme blessings. And uh, the Greek word that's used in there that he uses for blessed, it means receiving the benefits, advantages, provision, favor, and grace that God provides for this kind of person. And that's why, that's why it's called the Beatitudes. So what kind of people are blessed in Jesus' kingdom? And what benefits do we get? How many of you want to be blessed? Amen. <laughs> All right, so we should listen because he's the king, right? He's not just the savior, he's the king. And, uh, and he's telling us the way it is. So here's the list. He says, first of all, the poor in spirit get the kingdom of heaven. Wow, that's a blessing. What does poor in spirit mean? I, I think it really just means you know that you need God, that you need a savior, okay? Uh, there's a humility there, poor in spirit. And, uh, and he said, if, if you are poor, you get the kingdom of heaven, Those who mourn will be comforted. The meek will inherit the earth. What is meek? Well, the world thinks meek is equal to weak. Um, But really what meekness means is strength that is submitted to a master. You know, we use the word to meek a horse, right? Which means to, to train the horse to obey the commands of of the master. Jesus says, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be filled. He says, the merciful ones will be shown mercy. The ones with pure hearts will see God. Wow. The peacemakers will be called sons of God. Sons are the ones who are, who are like their father, right? Be a peacemaker. Those persecuted for righteousness' sake will, once again, get the kingdom of heaven. How many of you want to be persecuted? <laughs> but don't worry, it's not your choice. That would be a hard thing to choose. But it's not your choice because in the New Testament it says anyone who wants to live a life following God will face persecution. So it's nice sometimes when those choices are taken out of our hands. Amen? And again, he says, the next verse, those who are reviled and persecuted and falsely spoken evil of for Jesus' sake will get a great reward in heaven. Wow. So what can we notice about these behaviors in this poem? these qualities, these experiences that are blessed in the kingdom? Well, first of all, none of them 
are especially desired or valued in worldly systems. It's basically upside down. Jesus is turning the world's way of running things upside down uh, when he takes control. Another thing is they all seem very humbling. In other words, uh, we're we're, uh, humbled, we're lowered, we submit. Um, Another thing is all of them evidently are greatly valued by God. This is what God's values. And they also reflect the character of God. This is the way God is. You know, this is Mother's Day. Father's Day will come up next month. But sometimes we have a wrong picture of of the character of what, what a good father or a good king or leader is because of what we've seen on earth. But all of these humble, lowly character qualities, that's the way God is. That's who he is. Another thing, uh, all these Beatitudes show that those who follow Jesus' call into his kingdom are going to meet resistance from the world and its system. But, because we're abandoning it, right? The world's not happy that we're leaving them in their ways. But it's going to be okay. This is what it says. It is going to be okay. And finally, all of these things bring redemption and return to God's original purpose, both for our lives and for the world. Now, I urge you to talk to God, spend some time meditating on these beatitudes, these things. What do they mean for your life? I'm not going to go there too much this morning, uh, but that's a good thing for you to do. But one thing I'm going to say, though, is we can see change is definitely happening in our lives, in our priorities, and our behaviors when we enter Jesus' kingdom. It does not stay the same. We do not stay the same. And uh, the world's not going to like us because we break from their ways. However, by doing so, we are going to bring redemption to the world and the people that we meet. So Jesus is saying that in following his kingship, we're not going to need to worry about the things that we used to. Think about those Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. We used, the world worries about riches and pride. That's the opposite, right? We don't need to worry about avoiding sadness. How, many, how much energy do we waste on that? How about this? We don't need to worry about having our own way. We don't need to worry about obtaining or consuming all the things that we think are going to satisfy us. He said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. We don't need to worry about getting revenge or being well-versed in the impure ways of the world. I remember one time somebody in Kathy's class told her, yeah, in the future, we're going to see you in the gutter by the roadside because you don't know the ways of the world. No, sin doesn't work that way. Um, it's not like getting a, an education that's necessary. Um, 
We don't worry, how about this one? We don't need to worry about winning fights and arguments. We don't need to worry about protecting our health and well-being. We don't need to worry about protecting our reputations. These are the opposites of what the world said, the things that Jesus is listing here. And you might say, well, if I don't worry about those things, who's going to take care of me? Well, the, the answer to that question should be obvious, right? Um, in his kingdom, we return to our true identities. And that is, we are his true sons and daughters. We are children of the king. And... Um, We're, we're members of his royal family. Why don't we need to fight for those things? Because he's the father. It's the father's job to provide all of those things. We really need to tr- put our trust in him. Um, all we, what do we really need to be concerned about? We need to be concerned about knowing and loving him, our relationship with him, becoming like him, and being about his business of what he's called us to do, his business of redemption in the world. It's his responsibility to take care of the rest. And that's why we can humble ourselves and be those things that he says will be blessed. Remember, that's what he said. You will be blessed. You will receive if you take up these characteristics and and walk this way in your life. His rule has begun. This is the, the way things work now. All right, so after the Beatitudes poem, uh, Jesus said that those who follow him and receive persecution for following him are going to be like two things, like salt, the salt of the earth, and the light of the world. And uh, so the question is what, is, what does it mean to be salt? Um, Well, in the Old Testament, one thing is that God commanded Israel to add salt to their offerings at the tabernacle and the temple. Uh, In Leviticus 2.13, it says this, Season all your grain offerings with salt. Do not leave the salt of the covenant of your God out of your grain offerings. Add salt to all your offerings. Did you know that? I had forgotten that. They were supposed to put salt on their offerings before they burnt burnt them and gave them to God. So so firstly, Leviticus describes offerings as like God's bread or God's food. Now, God doesn't really need to eat, right? But it's an image of what our offerings are to him. And salt makes it good tasting to him. That's That's why we put salt on food. Another thing about salt is that it's a preservative, right? And so uh, salt kind of represents the continuing eternal nature of the covenant that God's establishing with his people in the world. And uh, Dave reminded me this week that for people in in the Middle East and the Eastern, there is a thing called the covenant of salt that if if somebody takes you into their home and feeds you food that has salt on it, that that was like a covenant that you were going to be true to that 
person, you would take care of them no matter what at, at penalty of death. So um, Jesus says that uh, we are the salt of the earth. And um, if we listen to Jesus and follow him in righteousness and through persecution, we will be that. But he's got a little warning here. Not a little warning, a big one. Those who fail to be salty in this way will be trampled underfoot. Similarly, Jesus says, we are the light of the world. By the oil of the Holy Spirit, we, the church, function as a lampstand to shine God's light into the world. And God chooses to do this through us. Um, in, the, in his book called The Gospel of Matthew Through New Eyes, Peter J. Lightheart sums up our function this way. He says, We are salt and light when we do good works. Men see our good works and they direct their worship and love and desires to God. If we cease to do good works, we become tasteless and are trampled underfoot. If we cease to do good works, we are placing a bushel basket over the lamp and the world becomes dark. The world is to be sacrificed to God, everything offered to him. And what makes that offering tasty to God is the presence of Jesus' disciples doing good works. The world is to be lighted like the first day of creation. And what floods the world with light is the presence of Jesus' disciples doing good works. The world cannot realize its purposes without us. It will not join in cosmic worship glorifying the Father in heaven unless the church does good works that are evident to men. Now, you might say, good works. Hey, I know we're not saved by good works. In fact, the background I come from, uh, that's kind of a dirty word in the church, good works, because that means you're not trusting in God by faith. Well, no, they, they go hand in hand. We're not trying, talking about trying to earn something from God or trying to do good and please him in your own human strength in the flesh. No. But uh, Jesus is talking about a work that he will do in, in us as we trust in him and submit to him as king and walk daily in a faith relationship with him. We've been filled with the Spirit. So Paul talks about it, walk by the Spirit. Another verse Paul uses that explains it really well is Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 to 10. And you may know this. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Yeah, that's what I was talking about, grace, yeah. And this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So I love this verse because it just cuts right to the heart of that question. Yeah, we're, we're saved by grace. There's no credit to yourself. And then next verse, we are his workmanship, created to do good works, but God prepared them that we should walk in them. So it, you can't take any credit for that, but it's a result of him living in you. Uh, he's going to change us. Um, 
the product of God's grace working in our lives is that we'll live in a way that pleases God and fulfills his law. Listen to it this way. Jesus hasn't changed God's law, but he changes us. Amen? That's the way it works. His presence in us causes us to be salt and light in the world. And so Jesus declares in, uh, in chapter 5, verse, verse 17, he says, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Maybe another word for that is blessed. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So that brings us to a question. What does it mean for our righteousness to exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees? Well, let's, let's list a few things. Number one, it's from God. Our righteousness is from God and it's by faith. It's not from ourselves or through human effort. Another thing is, it's not just an external facade. It's not a mask, but it's true and it pervades through through your whole self, through and through. It consists not just of of avoiding doing things that are wrong, but doing things that are good or right. It's motivated by love, and it expresses love. And also, it acts redemptively. In other words, it works to restore that which sin damaged or destroyed. So, I'm thinking back in the book of Micah, Micah 6, verse 8. There's a verse that explains what the Lord requires of people. It says this, He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God? What were those three requirements? Number one, to do justly. Um, If you've noticed, there's a serious lack of justice in our world. There's a big case out about that that happened in Georgia this week where those who are supposed to protect people um, ended up uh, killing somebody. To love mercy. To walk humbly with God. This is an interesting way to describe the law right after telling us that our righteousness needs to exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees, Jesus goes on to illustrate how that works with different areas of the law. Murder, adultery, divorce, swearing oaths, retaliation, and treatment of enemies. In each of these areas, how does Jesus the King see the law? And what does he require of us? Um, well, first, notice he uses the same formula in each area he talks about. He says, you have heard that it was said, 
And then he goes on, but I tell you, okay? So he's, he's correcting things that weren't explained the right way. And uh, I'll ask, as we look at these, how do we see acting justly, loving mercy, and walking humbly with God in each one of these? First one, he says, you've heard that it was said, you shall not murder. Now, to not physically take the life of another human being is like the bare bones surface interpretation of that. And I would suggest that the, the vast majority of everyone who's ever lived has kept that one that way, right? But Jesus says, um, don't stay angry at a person. He also says, don't let that anger make you speak insultingly to a person. And not even these are enough. He says that you and I have the responsibility to reconcile with your brother or sister before you bring your offering to God or before your uh, adversary takes you to court. It's not enough to just stop doing wrong. We need to try to bring reconciliation and healing into those relationships. That's what Jesus requires. Paul put it this way in Romans chapter 12. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, and sometimes that's a thing, right? Because relationships are two-sided. But as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. That is acting justly, loving mercy, and walking humbly with God. A child, a child of the king, which you and I are, can afford to do that. We can afford it. The next one he says is, you shall not commit adultery. Again, for a married man to not sleep with another woman uh, is the shallowest interpretation of avoiding adultery. But Jesus says, don't look lustfully at a woman. Even more, he said that a man should cut off anything in his life from his life that would lead him down the path of lust and adultery. Um, now, here's a question. Are you struggling with pornography? He's not really telling you that you should gouge your eyes out or cut off your hand. If you follow that line of logic, you would have to cut out your brain. Okay? Um, but what's he saying? He's saying... Um, do, do radical things. Get rid of the internet or whatever else gives you a path to look at those things. Or if there's a relationship with a per certain person that's tempting you to lust, back off and set boundaries for yourself. Protect yourself from falling into sin this way. And another thing, confess your struggles to another godly brother whom you trust or if you're married, even to your wife. Um, because, and ask them to pray for you, confess your sin to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Um, he's saying, take radical steps to deal with this sin, remembering that his powerful grace is available to you. And uh, it's better that you would lose your internet or your TV 
or even a relationship that you enjoy or an activity that you like to do? Or how about this, our prideful, perfect image in the eyes of others than that our whole body be lost in hell forever? Treat women justly, not demeaningly. Love mercy and not a hypocritical image of yourself, myself, and walk humbly in repentance and dependence on your God. That's what Jesus is saying. The next one he says, you've heard it said that whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Basically, that's just saying, well, if you're, gonna, if you're not satisfied with your wife, at least do it legally. Make sure you have all the proper documentation. Um, Jesus said that that was the result. Moses did that because the people's hearts were hard. It was a concession. But um, Jesus goes back to the Garden of Eden in Genesis, God's original design for marriage, which said, the two shall become one flesh. Later in Matthew 19, Jesus explained, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together let no man separate. Divorce, no matter which spouse is at fault, is a tearing apart that can't help but injure husband, wife, and children. What if a spouse displeased with his marriage acted justly to his spouse, loved mercy toward his spouse, and walked humbly with God and his spouse? As Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 5, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That's a sacrificing of self. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Now, of course, it always, like I said before, it always takes two people for a relationship to survive or succeed. But if both husband and wife pursue, pursued justice, mercy, and humility before God in the marriage, healing and redemption would start happening. Jesus said, you, you have heard it said, you shall not swear falsely. But I say to you, do not take oaths at all. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. He's not forbidding oaths in their proper setting, and that is to settle disputes. So it's not wrong if you're in court to swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. But what's he, what he's forbidding, um, according to Peter Lightheart, three things. He's saying all oaths are oaths before God, even if we do not invoke his name, and there is no escaping them. So it doesn't matter. Whatever you say, you can't escape it, okay? So it doesn't mean if you say, I swear to God, that doesn't, that doesn't change anything. You can't escape an oath. We should, another thing, we should not bluster and swear as a way of bullying people or bludgeoning people into accepting the truth of what we're trying to say. Um, <laughs> don't be a bully with your words. Swearing is a... Is a way of manipulating like that. And the third thing is we are to be a truth-telling people. Such, those kind of people don't need to take oaths. Simply let your yes be yes and your no be no. And nothing else is necessary. 
Acting justly requires speaking truth to people. Loving mercy doesn't go to any extent to win a verbal argument with someone else. And a humble person walking with God doesn't need to be proven right all the time. So what if somebody else thinks you're wrong? Okay, we don't, we need to do things. God, how many people are walking around in the world and think God is wrong? Is he trying to bully everybody into thinking he's right? No, he wants them to believe for, their own, for our own good, right? So we need to be like God. Then he says, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. So what was this? This was, a, this was a principle of civil justice in the Old Testament. The meaning of it was to prevent people from taking more than an eye for an eye or more than one tooth for a tooth. Um, remember Lamech? If you don't remember, he's the fifth generation down from Cain. And he told his two wives in Genesis 4, Ada and Zillah, listen to me. Wives of Lamech, hear my words. I have killed a man for wounding me. That's, that went beyond eye for eye. A young man for injuring me. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech 77 times. Do you see getting back 10 times or 11 times? Uh, for, and uh, interesting that Jesus would turn around and said, how many times should you forgive your brother? 70 times, seven times. Kind of echoes back to what, the opposite of what this ungodly man was saying. Um, boy, you can see how family feuding like the Hatfields and the McCoys happens, right? And the cycle just goes on and on and never resolves. Um, we see it so many places in the world. But the Lord says in Deuteronomy, and then he echoes it twice in the New Testament, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. God says that vengeance is his job, not ours. And so Jesus says in verse 39 here, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. This is referring to the Roman soldiers. Uh, people were required to carry their pack for a mile. He says, then do it too. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Again, so how many times do we think, oh, they're just trying to take it, it's a scam, they're trying to take advantage of me. When we were in China, I just found it very interesting that I met so many people who very, knew very little of the Bible, but they knew this verse, and they wholeheartedly objected to it vehemently, and I think that's because this is all about defending a sense of pride and honor. And Jesus is saying, enough with these human games of pride and honor. You don't need to defend your pride and honor. You don't need to do evil in the name of protecting your precious pride. 
You don't have to be involved in gang warfare or ethnic cleansing to break this commandment. Uh, Peter Lightheart interprets this way. Don't think, I've ne don't think I've never been involved in a family feud. I've never been tempted to be a vigilante. This doesn't apply to me. We still act out of vengeance in our marriages, in our friendships, in our dealings with difficult people at work or difficult leaders in the church. A friend insults us and we want to pay back. Someone makes us look stupid in class and we want to do something to humble them. Our husband or wife does something embarrassing and we look for a chance to even the score. Jesus is telling his disciples not to get caught up in these cycles of honor and violence. But at the same time, he's not telling us to do nothing. He, rather, he's telling us to act redemptively. A slap on the right cheek is an insult. And in Jesus' cu culture, it would have been doubly insulting because the, it would have had to be done with the left hand, right? Left hand on the right cheek. And the left hand is the dirty hand. They didn't have toilet paper back then. Okay, so you didn't shake somebody's left hand. You didn't do, you, you use your right hand. You didn't eat with, eat with your left hand. It was like that when we went to India. Um, so that would be an insult. Uh, the other way, it would, it would have to be backhanded. That's the way they treated a, a slave. And so that would be an insult too. They would say that you, you're subservient to them. And so um, he's talking about being insulted. And he, he's telling us, did not just tell us to take this insult, but to turn the other cheek. Why? Again, Peter Lightheart explains, if you applied this concept, eye for an eye, it's called lex talionis in Greek, it would be to return a slap for a slap. Jesus said, apply the lex talionis in this redemptive, surprising way. Accept the second slap rather than giving it. The double restitution comes back on the disciple who bears the punishment on behalf of the one who assaults him. Do you get that? You're doing something. Retribution is happening. It's just that instead of the other person taking it, you're taking it yourself. That's what Jesus is talking about. And uh, in this way, the disciples of Jesus are taking the insults, the injustice, the oppression on themselves, but they are ending the cycle of violence. How can we possibly do that? Well, firstly, that's exactly what Jesus did for us on a much bigger scale that he took our sin upon himself. And so the other thing is he lives in us, knowing that he lives in us, we can do that too. In fact, he's calling us to do that, to be like, this is how we can be like Jesus. He's our helper, our healer, our strength. We're children of the king. We've got a wellspring of love flowing up from within us, unlimited resources, and he is our glory. He's the lifter of our heads. Our goal is redemption and salvation for the world around us, not getting revenge 
against it. If that needs to be done, it's God's job. And he, is, he will certainly take care of it in a just and effective way. Do we believe that? How many times does he have to say that that's his job? He can certainly do it, and he will, if it needs be. Let me give you one more quote from Peter Lightheart about this. Jesus is forbidding us to enter into the cycle of vengeance and counter-strike, but he's also forbidding us from doing nothing. Jesus doesn't want us to accept evil and not resist at all. Jesus is not telling us to take it, glowering resentfully as we get beaten to a pulp. Jesus is not talking about a situation where you simply grudgingly trudge along beside the Roman soldier, burning bitterly the whole time. He's not talking about just gritting your teeth and taking it when someone takes your cloak from you. Scribes and Pharisees could do that. Often they had no choice. It's not, that's not redemptive righteousness. That's not righteousness at all. That's just realism, stoicism, accepting oppression and evil, and doing nothing because you can't do anything about it. Jesus says we can do something about oppression. We can act. We can act in ways that arrest oppression and undo it. In other words, Jesus is teaching a form of resistance, but a form of resistance in which good triumphs over evil. Instead of perpetuating insults and blows, Jesus teaches his disciples to act in a surprising way that brings an end to the cycle. That's amazing, isn't it? But it's true, because that's what he did. It does, here's what it does. It requires faith in the supernatural. You have to believe that God is going to act, that God is going to back you up. But he will. He's God, if we believe him. The last thing he said, you, sh- you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, well, frankly, that's, that's basic human nature, right? To, to love your neighbors and hate your enemies. But King Jesus summed it up differently by showing that his reborn disciples have a new nature that we inherited from our Heavenly Father. And I'll close with the rest of the chapter. Verse 43. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. How many of you want to be a true child of God? A true child has the character of their father or mother. For he makes his son rise on evil and the good and sends rain to the, on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? Poor tax collectors. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Wow. So Jesus is saying, hey, I'm coming in to 
you to change your life so that you will be like me, that you will be like your father in heaven. That's what he means to do. And it's possible. On earth, we rationalize. We say, oh, I can't do that. I'm just a human. You're born again. You have him living in you. He is, his grace works powerfully in you. How much do we believe that? Well, what does he say? Remember the first thing he preached. He said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So we begin by repenting. If, if we're convicted when we hear these words of Jesus, that's okay. We can humble ourselves. We, sh- we shouldn't expect that we were perfect to begin with, right? That's pride. Begin by repenting. Submit to his lordship in that area and put your trust in him. Okay, what do do I need to trust him for? But isn't he God? Can't he do that? Has he made any promises that he will do these things for you when you follow his way? Yeah, the Bible's full of them. So today, maybe, I don't know what you're struggling with. We all struggle with things. I struggle with things. But today, bring Bring that before the Lord and say, Lord, I lay this down before you. Jesus, you're the king, and I want to be like you. I want to be like my father, and you have died and ro- risen again so that, so that my life can be changed and that your kingdom can come in me and through me in this world. Praise the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you that you you have redeemed us. You so loved the world that you gave your only begotten son that whoever believes in you will not perish but have everlasting life. And so Lord, we ask, we humble ourselves before you and we repent of the ways that we have been wrong. And Lord, we want to follow Jesus. You've called us and we want to follow Uh, not just in words, but we want to follow day by day in relationship with you. Help us to grow to be more like Jesus. Work in us those works that you prepared in advance that we should walk in them. Work them out in us. And Lord, we look to you. We humble ourselves and submit to you, Lord, and we thank you. Jesus, we glorify you as king. You are king, and we praise you, and we bless you. We lift up your name. Be exalted in our lives. Be exalted in the world. In Jesus' name, amen.